It's time for Vax Talk. Let's talk VPDs. We're shaping the conversation about vaccines. To learn more, visit VaxTalk.org. Hello, and welcome to Vax Talk. This is the podcast for people who are masking up until there's a vaccine. I just realized today that the one mask that I really want that I don't see out in public is a mask that looks like Optimus Prime's like mouth covering. And I think that masks are like perfectly shaped for that. So I need some right. people to get on that. But right, anyway. I, I know the perfect person to make that for you. Anyhow, I'm Karen Ernst and I'm the executive director of Voices for Vaccines. And I'm Dr. Nathan Boonster, a pediatrician here at Blank Jones Hospital in Des Moines, Iowa. Oh, you added the doctor. Fancy. Yeah, well, sometimes I, 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 I don't keep that hidden sometimes. <laughs> Your secret power like Dr. Manhattan. Mm-hmm. Um, we are going to be talking about routine vaccines on the podcast. And because uh, Dr. Boonstra, Dr. Nathan Boonstra, is a pediatrician who practices currently, we're going to have it be an all Nathan and Karen show, which should excite and thrill everyone. That, yeah. I mean, honestly, do we need guests? Probably, but not for this episode. <laughs> Before we launch into discussions of routine vaccines and what that means during a pandemic and what's going on with that, do you want to give us your Around the Web? Yeah, so the one thing that I want to talk about is this new quote-unquote white paper that's making the rounds. Um, so this is a paper that's being circulated by some by a kind of known anti-vaxxer, Mark Blaxel, who's been a part of various anti-vaccine websites and initiatives and whatnot. Yeah, and I I say quote unquote white paper because honestly, if you're an anti-vaxxer and you're trying to write a white paper, really, it's not. I don't know what the technical definition of white paper is, but I think it's just an it's just a more formal screed is really what I would call it. Um, this particular paper starts out talking about COVID and it uses statistics that are interesting to look at in that it looks at in adults seeing that there's been what increase in death rates have happened and it looks at them on a weekly basis and some of that increase is going to be from COVID-19 because that is more dangerous to the older age groups but according to this data in the under 18 groups deaths on a weekly basis have dramatically decreased since the beginning of March basically and of course what this uh these people are trying to make the point of or trying to make the argument for is that this decrease must be due to people delaying doing the thing that we're going to be talking about here on this show delaying their vaccine visits that somehow that is and particularly going into sudden infant deaths they tried to make that argument the Mm -hmm. reason that i bring this up and what i want to talk about is how the paper itself kind of blows that theory out of the water because one of the things that it does is it breaks down the ages so when Blaxel uh, and the uh, co-author whose name I was unfamiliar with Amy Becker um, wrote it they they grouped out kind of the uh, uh, birth to 12 month olds the one to five year olds and then five to like 15 year olds if I'm remembering correctly and they graph them out 
And when he graphs them out, he says, you know, most of the decline in pediatric deaths on a weekly basis is from these, is from infants, as you can see from these graphs. And if you actually look at the graphs, you find that that decline is happening in all age groups and may actually be greater in the 5 to 14 year old age range than in the infant deaths. The sad thing is that baseline there are far more infant deaths than deaths of other ages right. in kids so it looks more dramatic in these graphs but it's really the same percentage of decline in deaths since the beginning of March in all the age groups and he leaves off the 14 to 18 year olds and I'd have to pull up that data to figure out why he did that but I'm guessing it didn't quite fit with his theory so he kind of completely sweeps under the rug or pretends like the declines in the other age groups aren't happening when they clearly are. Hmm. Um, so clearly there's a large change. The, the changes that are happening with people quarantining, with people staying in, social distancing, things being shut down that may be more dangerous, you know, activities, whether it's, you know, things were shut down for a while in terms of like trampoline parks and skate parks and all these other things that could cause you know that could lead to some pediatric deaths those things are going down deaths are going down there's no data in this paper to suggest that it's SIDS related at all that the SIDS themselves are going down we only know deaths overall from the data so SIDS is not reported as quickly as far as I know that we can't look that up as quickly um, mm -hmm. So there's a no evidence in the paper that it's actually that the decline in the infant groups is from SIDS reduction, although SIDS tend to be a large proportion of infant deaths. But the other counter argument is that even if there was a decline in SIDS, it's entirely understandable that changes that are happening with COVID-19 may be reducing SIDS risk, that parents on a population level, their behaviors are changing, they're home more, there's maybe two parents home, so maybe uh, it's possible that new parents might be able to get, you know, do things for safe sleep that they were less mm -hmm. likely to do. Um, Fewer so those respiratory illnesses. Yeah, respiratory illnesses are going down and those can be, um, you know, things that can contribute to getting a, a SIDS diagnosis and might be, you know, an undiagnosed viral things, things like that. So absolutely, there are those reasons. We know from, uh, this is not a question that hasn't been answered, whether or not SIDS is related to vaccines. We know that vaccinated kids have far lower rates of SIDS than unvaccinated kids. If anything, to reduce the risk of SIDS, um, babies should be vaccinated. Um, and so this isn't an unknown quantity. It's not like we have to wait for this data to come in before we know. We know right. <laughs> because there's been countless studies specifically on this um, issue. But it's a good example of how deceptive anti-vaccine groups are. And it's another one of those times when I look at it and say, this seems like something that is not, you, you know, I never quite know where incompetence ends and like <laughs> deception begins with some of these anti-vaccine groups. But this is like, I don't think you could have missed this. I think that you deliberately tried to hide this. Mm -hmm. um, I have thoughts. First of all, I just want to point out that Mark Blaxel is the gentleman who during 2017 
outbreak among um, our Somali neighbors in Minneapolis uh, came to Minneapolis and encouraged Somali people to continue not getting vaccinated against measles. So he's a stellar guy. Hmm. Um, Second thought is that I can name the last three times I've put gas in my car. I put put gas in my car on May 31st. Uh I put gas in my car on uh, about April 1st. No, about April 30th. Mm-hmm. And then I put gas in my car uh, about March 17th. Uh, and obviously, I'm not the typical kind of person who only gasses up her car once a month. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we're just driving a lot less. And yes. so I, while you were talking, I looked up causes of death, the top mm-hmm. 10 causes of death by age group. So mm-hmm. under age one, um, f- the first cause... Um, about four times greater than SIDS is congenital abnormalities. Yes. Uh, also, about four times greater than SIDS is a short gestation. Uh, about equal to SIDS is maternal mm-hmm. pregnancy complications. Uh, after that is SIDS, and then fifth is unintentional in, in Excuse me. After SIDS is unintentional injury. Mm-hmm. So for ages one through four, five through nine, ten through fourteen. 15 through 24, 25 through 34, and 35 through 44, the number one cause of death is unintentional injury. Um, Yep. So I'm going to go out on a limb and say that it's possible that the decrease in deaths among children has to do with them staying home and not Mm -hmm. being injured in car accidents, in, you know, pedestrian accidents, in... Swinging from the monkey bar accidents, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, the sad thing is that between ages one and four, the third leading cause of death is homicide, uh, mm. which is awful. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot of fudging going around uh, in that white paper, as it were. Yep. Uh, and it's definitely worth looking at in an honest way. But I think that pointing the finger at vaccines is you know a little bit like saying jenny mccarthy's rise is due to organic food sales because they're both correlated right right yeah and i I, just for you know the audience you you probably will come across this if you haven't already and usually it's presented in some kind of um way to say you know this evidence is clear that sids are going down because people are delaying vaccines it's clearly not it's just it is another one of these anti-vaccine deceptions it's really interesting in that they the authors try to do like they posit what you said and say oh yeah well accidents are going down but they say it's not going down in these older age groups and then you look at the data and then nope they're they're just lying it is going down in the older age groups for sure for sure uh, and I want to mention, too, that our friend Vince Ianelli mm-hmm. at his vaxopedia.org website uh, broke this down a little bit. So please look that up if you want more information. Speaking of our favorite anti-vaxxers, I'm going, I, my, my Around the Web is actually a little bit of an audio presentation. This is our friend um, Del Bigtree mm. explaining to us why... He doesn't have to be concerned about people who are 
at higher risk for complications. Okay. I have not watched diseases. this yet, so I'll be interested to listen to it. All right, here we go. Close this down. That 0.26% are the most sick among us. And I have nothing against you. Go ahead and bubble wrap your house, please. Lock yourself in your basement. Go and do what's necessary. But here's the problem. When you were my age, you were most likely eating food and fast food and Doritos and drinking Coca-Cola, which you will never find in my home. You were eating that all the time. You uh, probably were drinking a lot of different alcoholic beverages and really liked the party and probably really enjoyed your cigarettes. And you said to yourself, you know what, it's more about the quality of my life right now. I don't care if I live to be 100 years old. I want to enjoy my life right now. I like the finer things in life. I like good, rich food. I like smoking a cigarette once in a while. I like to drink my drinks. And you know what? Good on you. That's the United States of America. I have no problem with that. Some of my best friends think like that. It's great, and they're fun to hang out with. That is perfectly okay. But here's what's not okay. When you reach that point in your life where now your arteries are starting to clog up, your body is shutting down, and the alcohol is eating up your liver, and you have diabetes, or you have multiple COPD, you have asthma, you can't breathe, all the cigarette smoking finally caught up with you, you have heart disease because of the way you decide to live your life in the moment, here's what you are now. You are pharmaceutical dependent. You did that to yourself, not me. You decided that the moment mattered, and now you find yourself pharmaceutical dependent, which is really what that 0.26% is. And that's okay, too. Thank God there's drugs out there. There's drugs that allow you to eat that Philly cheesesteak, even though your body knows it hates it. But go ahead, take the Prilosec. What difference does it make? Drug yourself. Drug yourself. Get through the day. Don't exercise. Maybe just attach a little electrode and see if electrocuting your stomach will give you the abs you want. Come on. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Yeah, so, I mean, the point that he's trying to make is that he shouldn't have to inconvenience himself by getting vaccinated or having his children vaccinated or wearing a face mask or, you know, otherwise altering <laughs> his life in tiny ways that are completely not, you know, inconvenient in order to protect these people that he's blaming, often incorrectly, for having any sort of risk factor. The highest risk population for COVID-19 is the elderly. It's the people that have lived a long, long time <laughs> that are at greatest risk of this illness. They made it that far. Like, they're doing okay. We're not, this isn't like, he's just kind of conjuring out of thin air all the risk factors that he thinks are risk factors, which are, you know, foods that they ate when they were his age. <laughs> and not simply the fact that, you know, when you are older, certain things, you know, you, you, for this particular virus, you are at higher risk because you don't have the reserves that younger people do for the kinds of, uh, injury that this virus causes that's you know yes do people with more medical issues have more uh you know at, at any given age have 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 more of a risk from this virus yes but like that's not the the biggest risk if you just look at the stats just by decade as you get older you're at the highest risk that's not 0.27 it gets into 
you know, 5% risk at a certain decade of life and 10%, 15, 20%, like high risks of death from this virus the older that you get. It, it, it's... Uh, Whose fault is that, though? Yeah. I mean, right? why are For they getting so, so old? Right. Yeah. But that's kind of the thing is that, that that's basically, man, he rattles off everything. And that's the no true Scotsman fallacy in action. It doesn't, if you die... Uh, if you have a bad outcome, whether it's from this, uh, that, that th this is the argument that anti-vaxxers make, if you have a bad outcome from a disease, a vaccine-preventable disease, or in this case, COVID-19, they'll find something that was wrong in your life that you did wrong. And in, you know, whether it's food you ate 40 years ago, <laughs> Um, or you know all these things. There's there's nobody who's truly healthy in their minds um, because you can always blame something else on the bad outcome, not the lack of getting your vaccine or doing what public health asks you to right. do. So ugh, it's frustrating. There, there's something too that really upsets me about this argument, and it's not confined to anti-vaxxers alone. I mean, first of all, he lumps in asthma in there. Like, all the kids yeah. with asthma are smokers, right? right. Um, <laughs> which is, um, obviously, it's ridiculous. You know, people with asthma didn't mm -hmm. do something to get asthma. Right. Yep. Uh, but I just want to say that good health is often due to good luck. Mm -hmm. it's, it's not yep. something that you earned because of your moral superiority. And I want to say that people in bad health are not moral, morally inferior, even if they didn't eat well, even if they smoked, even mm -hmm. if they didn't exercise well. You know, most of the people I know who are overweight, and you know, I, I got a few extra pounds myself, there's a story behind that. It's not like, hey, you know what, I really just feel like sitting on my butt and eating ice cream all day, right? Stress They're entirely, is a, extremely complex cause. Right, right. Stress is a, a, a major cause in in bad health outcomes, and usually it's stress that uh, people can't control in their lives. Uh, mm -hmm. I also want to point out that the people most likely to have non-age risk factors are black and brown people, mm -hmm. and you know a lot of um, a lot of that is partially because health outcomes, even when you um, even when you account for income and education level and all that stuff. Uh, health outcomes for black and brown people are worse than they are for white people. Mm -hmm. They just are. That is the health impact of racism in this country. Mm -hmm. uh, secondly, you know, if you want to look at a great number of people in our country who live in food deserts and don't have access to, you know, Del Big Trees, Malibu, <laughs> organic co-ops. Uh -huh. So he can feel as morally superior as he wants, but he's doing that on the backs of people who just had poorer luck than he did. That's basically what he is doing: is he's shaming everybody, um, and the 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 very the extremely common. Um, tactic of the anti-vaccine movement to be able to dismiss anything that uh, comes bad from any of these diseases as something that other people are doing wrong. Right. I mean, and it's really trying, it's really trying to obfuscate what public health is. Public health is about 
how our health is dependent on each other you know and and sometimes that does have to do with nutrition you know our yeah. our nutritional health is dependent on each other depending on where we live but especially with infectious diseases our health concerning covid-19 our health concerning measles our health concerning pertussis you know all three of those can have lifelong complications if you survive them that would make you an at-risk person in the future and a contracting those diseases has nothing to do with personal choices but anti-vaxxers really want to make that less clear and they want they are constantly trying to make it seem as though even contracting the disease was somehow that you have culpability when mm-hmm. you contracted the disease because you you know didn't eat the right foods because you weren't you know exercising whatever it is um when you and i know perfectly well that very healthy people very responsible people you know very morally upright people however you want to say it are getting all sorts of diseases and having the worst outcomes and it's just stupid luck yeah well and i'm a pediatrician so i see have seen bad outcomes in babies like brand new babies that caught a disease that could have been prevented um and seen influenza deaths these are young children that it's not because you know they were healthy kids before they they caught these illnesses and um, in some of these cases, it could have been prevented. And it's not because of their lifestyle choices. It's because they caught, well, o- other than maybe being unvaccinated from something, you know, it's because they caught a deadly illness. And that deadly illness is more deadly to some, but it is not 0% deadly to anybody. There's always that chance. So the reason I wanted to highlight this before I let it go is just that it's it's not an uncommon argument right now right mm-hmm. so you're seeing people who really don't want to wear masks and i'm i'm not going to shame those people because it's a big behavioral change to ask people to accomplish right now and some people just need time to get used to it and i get that some people feel really anxious about wearing masks they don't like being reminded that we're in a pandemic like there's all sorts of psychological structures around the resistance to wearing masks it's not necessarily that people are terrible right but within that we're getting sort of the same worldview being pushed out on us that we really have to push up against right we can love those people but we have to say i I can't let you say that and the reason that i can't let you say that is that you know wearing masks is highly effective in protecting the spread of this disease among all of us and we're all in this together whether or not we want to be like yeah even that neighbor of yours who plays music too loud or shoots off fireworks that you're dependent on each other and so it's really we really need to push back about against this idea in general that health is this personal choice and you have personal freedom around it Uh when indeed health is a public choice and you have personal responsibility to contribute to it that's my yeah box. i i completely agree and i it, it is kind of a very interesting 
kind of like the ultimate trust fall here in that we all <laughs> masks work in such a way so with vaccines of course vaccines protect the person who gets the vaccine and they also protect other people with the masks it's almost entirely protecting other people right <laughs> and i can make a whole discussion about face shields that i think are not getting enough um attention on a state or national level because there's good evidence that they are protecting both ways but when it comes to masks uh, they're pretty much protecting everybody. Everybody has to do it to protect everybody else. And it is an extremely unique um, situation. Well, maybe not unique, but it is kind of a clear um, demonstration of looking out for others. Mm-hmm. And how well are we as a country doing with that? And how much are we willing to look out for other people? Uh, what kind of culture do we have in terms of actually looking out for other people, despite saying things and posting memes about how important it is to help others when it comes down to something that's as simple as a mask? It's a 100% non-invasive procedure to put on a mask. Right. Um, then even that, people are like, nope, that's too much to 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 do our part. And that's really sad. It's really saddening to to see that unfold it is um i just want to mention here that you know my side project right now that is totally completely volunteer is a little facebook group called americans who mask and it's just sort of normalizing mask wearing it's a fun group people post like their cute cute masks and um it's 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 when I'm feeling down, I actually go to that group and look at what people are posting because it's just, it's like, oh, that's right. Most of us are doing this work together. So just put a little plug in for that. Yeah, it's very nice. I'm going to get in there and ask some people to get on the Optimus Prime mask thing. though. I told you I have the perfect person to Good. ask for that. <laughs> we'll do that off site because if I mention her Etsy shop, she's going to be overwhelmed. <laughs> So I want to just share a really dismaying fact to start with, because I always like starting with cynicism. So mm. according to the vaccine data, the vaccine safety data link, um, there was an almost 50% drop in children being vaccinated for measles during the first quarter of 2020. So the first three months compared to the same period in 2019. And we know mm. that birth rates didn't dip suddenly, right. nothing like that happened. So that's just... 50% fewer children going in to get their vaccine. So I want to see if that sort of comports with what you're seeing at Blank Children's Hospital there in Des Moines, Iowa. Sure, it does. Um, I know on a state level here too, because there's been a report from our Department of Public Health looking at vaccine distribution, and it's roughly the same. Like looking at the different age groups, there has been a larger drop. Looking at March to March from last year and April to April, um, that there has been, depending on the age group, between a 30 or 50 or more percent drop in immunizations given that month. And that is alarming. Yes, it also needs to be taken in context in the sense that a lot of people immediately jump to blame um, or to point the finger at 
parents not wanting to come in, but I think it's very important to bring up the probably even the bigger factor is clinics. Like we were all trying to do, we all wanted to do our part and help reduce the spread of COVID. And that meant taking e physicals that can be delayed um, and delaying them. Now for our practice, we didn't delay, we didn't intentionally delay any visits that were less than two years of age. Not only are those just developmental milestones for those little infants critical to get on time but also those vaccines are more time sensitive and so it was more important to keep our patients on that schedule that said some parents just didn't come with covid going on people were busy sometimes i think it was unintentional that appointments were missed sometimes it was intentional that they didn't they weren't sure about how bad covid was going to be um and so a lot of this is going to be delay and not refusal. Um, and it's it's more in the older age groups, too, where there is wiggle room. So, you know, the, the pre-kindergarten vaccines, the recommendation is to get those between four and six years of age. So we were delaying at least a few months some of those um, physicals they're going to come in and get their shots, you know, virtually all of them. Anytime you do a delay, I guess there's a chance that somebody might not or might get later and then they end up, you know, don't have their vaccines on time and sometimes they even get a waiver because they just didn't get their vaccines on and it's easier to get the waiver. But for the most part, um, these are going to get caught up. The, the key is that it's going to take an effort. And so our clinic is going through a lot both in terms of getting the word out that it's important and safe now that we've made all of our changes now that we've seen uh now that um the the spread of covid in our state has decreased and is flattened we are trying to make sure that families are getting in to get those vaccines on time so the most important thing is everybody out there um if you have vaccines do for your child call your pediatrician call your child's doctor they will be able to tell you their plan for getting your kid up to date and get it done right absolutely i, I do want to say that i know one woman asked me she had a four-year-old and her clinic called and said we're delaying these four-year-old shots and she said can i do that and i'm like yes you can delay them till he's five mm -hmm. because he's not going to kindergarten right now so it's gonna right. be fine right yeah. so I mean, that, that kind of stuff. But the other thing that the CDC kind of wants people to recognize is that some of this might be an access issue, too. I, do, mm -hmm. I don't know if that's what you're seeing, but, you know, a number of people lost their jobs. A mm -hmm. record number of people lost their jobs, right? Yep. And lost their health insurance. And so um, people are not sure how to access vaccines for their children if they don't have health insurance but there is the vaccines for children program which right. kids can get vaccinated for free and so sort of what we need to do as a pro-vaccine community is get the word out better about vaccines for children and make sure people understand that even if you don't have health insurance you can get your kids vaccinated and it shouldn't cost you a penny that those precautions are very very important and i would argue actually if you don't have health insurance it's even more important to make sure your kids get vaccinated because the last thing you want to do is end up in a hospital without health insurance yeah there's a lot of reasons why vaccines are 
extremely important right now. We talked about them, I think, on the last episode. I kind of went through them. But just in brief, um, number one, you don't want to get a vaccine-preventable disease and COVID at the same time. Two, two diseases are worse than one. So that's one reason. Second is that some of these vaccines might actually help reduce complications of COVID. So I think specifically of some of the vaccines we have against pneumonia that we give to kids. So pneumonia is a complication of COVID-19. So if you're immunized against at least some of the bacteria that can cause pneumonia, that might help a child out. Um, and then the third is that we just don't want outbreaks of these diseases after we get through COVID. We don't need measles uh, resurfacing anywhere. And as we've talked about on a global level, there are cessations of certain, um, you know, like measles and polio immunization drives. Yes. Uh, what about that? Those influenza rates? With influenza immunization, it's pretty common for families to have more hesitancy about that than routine vaccines. There's a lot of reasons for that, and that's not new. Um, the 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 reality is that when I, I give a talk about vaccines that get a bad rap, and the vac- uh, flu vaccine gets a bad rap for... I'm not going to say good reasons, but understandable reasons in that it does have an efficacy that's lower than most of our other routine vaccines, and you have to get it every year, and you don't have, you know, it's variable from year to year, and adults get and spread influenza a lot less than children, and so they don't perceive the value in influenza vaccines in themselves very much, and that transfers to their kids, even though kids are at higher risk of of getting influenza, and it, it's probably even more beneficial uh, to them than to a healthy adult. So all of those kinds of preconceived notions lead to the fact that um, you know, when it comes to vaccine hesitancy in one particular study, you know, about 6% of parents are hesitant about routine immunizations, but 26% are hesitant about the influenza vaccine. Those are the factors going into it. The reality is that in the, you know, it kind of depends on where you live, but influenza is a is one of the higher risks for kids in terms of actually having a bad outcome or death you're getting a lot when you immunize your child against influenza and we see every year 100 to 200 pediatric deaths in the united states most of which would be prevented if those kids had gotten immunizations they're almost always 80 percent or 90 percent unimmunized that mm-hmm. that have the the deaths from from influenza and it's going to be even more important this coming season with the pandemic which is still going to be continuing uh into the fall and into the winter right to get it done so yeah um in 2018 2019 uh less than 60 percent of american children were vaccinated against influenza and then we know this past season 2019 to 2020 we had 166 pediatric flu deaths Mm -hmm. and the cdc estimates that 39 million people got sick 410,000 were hospitalized and 24,000 died. And I just want to say that when lockdown started, like flu was still going and then mm-hmm. it kind of stopped because stopped. we all stopped yes. being around each other. Yep. So that was, that was, a uh, an, er, like that was artificially ended early. So it could have been a lot worse. Uh, just looking at that and also thinking about the studies that they've done in Japan where, when school children are vaccinated against influenza, the chances of their grandparents catching it were reduced. Right. 
That that's one of the things that I always point to with the flu vaccine is that not only do kids get and spread a lot more influenza, and it seems to work as well or maybe better in kids than in adults, the the vaccine does. Um, it's pretty clear from the the experience in Japan as well as other studies. There's been some interestingly uh, performed studies. Um, to look at what happens in communities when kids are well vaccinated w against influenza versus not. And it is very clear that other at-risk groups, particularly the elderly, their cases and deaths from influenza go down. And that was very dramatic in Japan during the years in which influenza vaccine was required for school children in Japan decades ago. You could just see uh, uh, when that requirement kicked in and then the, the um, deaths in the elderly population from influenza declined dramatically. And then as they let up on that requirement, they just went back up to where they were before right. so absolutely if you want to protect your whole family and protect um, those that are most vulnerable in your family make sure that your family is immunized against influenza right and that's part of that whole personal responsibility to public health right mm -hmm. uh, but it, it also kind of when a lot of public health folks are concerned about flu season and having a big old flu season uh, and alongside the pandemic, where we're just going to have this incredible burden to our health systems, that if we could get all those kiddos vaccinated against flu, that it might make a big difference population-wise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's just the nature of influenza. Um, and if kids are, since kids get and spread more influenza, as best we can tell, they're kind of the vectors for influenza and getting them immunized just has a great benefit to the whole community and to them. So I want to, we we're talking about public health, but I want to um, spread it out a little to global health. I know sometimes when I, I'm worried about talking about global health, because I think when people think about global health they think oh that doesn't affect me that's really far away where things are bad and it's not the same but I just I, I want people to think about it differently and instead think of things that are happening in other countries as things that could potentially happen here the way that COVID-19 started in China and now we're the the United States is the biggest you know source of infection for it so I just want to read this um, June 14th New York Times of uh, section of this New York Times article uh, titled slowing the coronavirus is speeding the spread of other diseases all right so this is a little bit of a excerpt here this spring after the world health organization and unicef warned that the pandemic could spread swiftly when children gathered for shots many countries suspended their inoculation programs even when in countries that tried to keep them going cargo flights with vaccine supplies were halted by the pandemic and health workers diverted to fight it now diphtheria is appearing in Pakistan, Bangladesh, and Nepal. A mutated strain of polio virus has been reported in more than 30 countries, and measles is flaring up around the globe, including in Bangladesh, Brazil, Cambodia, Central African Republic, Iraq, Kazakhstan, Nepal, Nigeria, and Uzbekistan. According to the Measles and Rubella Initiative, 178 million people are at risk for missing their measles shots in 2020. So there we go. That's uh, that, It's not just flu. Mm. That's the other global health crisis we're looking at 
occurring in the midst of a pandemic. Yeah, uh, I think it can't be understated how much of a setback this is. This is going to take years and years to get back to um, the kinds of um, prevention levels that we were at before. And yeah, it's very scary because I don't even know when, like you really do start to think about how much letting up on this can result in kind of bad outcomes on a larger scale. So starting to see polio, which we had nearly eradicated um, Mm -hmm. from the globe, spring up in multiple countries Man, it just is a testament to how much you have to continue to keep pressure on the virus and continue to maintain those rates. Lapsing can lead to extremely bad outcomes pretty quickly. Right. Yeah, the the virus isn't waiting around to see if you start vaccinating again. It just wants new hosts. It just wants to replicate. So yeah, we've got to stay on top of it. We have to be worried about what's happening in other countries and also... You know, it's not like it was super long ago that we had a massive measles outbreak, right? Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, we so, we could start seeing cases of congenital rubella syndrome in the United States again. We could start yeah. seeing diphtheria. You know, there's all these crazy things that we could start seeing that's really scary. And also, you know, when you burden health systems in places like Bangladesh and Pakistan and, you know, these middle-income countries you their economy suffers our global security suffers you know it would be hard to overstate how terrible this is for all of us Uh, Mm -hmm. and you know what an investment it's going to take in time and resources and money and people to get back on track well that impact is so widespread when it comes to infectious disease people don't realize that it's not just about people not getting sick people don't necessarily realize how much it affects economies and and covid hopefully brings that into the picture uh for some people in that it's clear that you know all the things that we had to do to contain covid because we don't have a vaccine has significantly impacted our economy and it's worth mentioning that even if we didn't if we just let covid you know this is morbid to think about but run its course that would severely impact perhaps worse our economy because people dying at a high rate has a huge impact obviously on things um so to think of that especially then in countries where there may not be as many resources to be able to fall back on um the impact that these diseases have on those countries um even more so so the other thing that I kind of want to talk about a little bit is this article from The Guardian that is talking about United States anti-vaxxers aim to spread fear over future coronavirus vaccine. And so there was a, a survey in early May by two academics found that 23% of Americans would not be willing to get vaccinated against COVID-19. And in another poll, 14% said they wouldn't get vaccinated and another 22% were unsure. And according to uh, yet another poll, only about half of Americans say that they would get COVID-19 vaccine if available. And that was an Associated Press um, survey. Does th- is that surprising to you, Karen, uh, <laughs> for this particular vaccine or future vaccine? 
So it's not. I'm going to list the reasons why I'm not even a little bit surprised. First mm-hmm. of all, it, you're asking people if they'll take something that isn't in existence yet. So it's so theoretical. It's it's sort of like saying, would you ride a unicorn if they made one? I, I don't know. <laughs> How safe is it to ride a unicorn? What, right. What's going to happen with it? Um, the second is just based on my under based on my recall of h1n1 and when that vaccine came out right before it came out people were like i don't know it's this brand new vaccine which it wasn't but that's what everyone was saying right yeah and then when it came out like the lines to get it were Mm mind-blowing um and i i know i talked to one mom whose son is in my son's class and had asthma and she talked about how when he finally got his shot she broke down in tears she was so relieved that they finally got the shot so i kind of think when it's actually available these numbers won't be the same but right now those anti-vaxxers are using these uncertainties to gin up concerns in general about vaccines um, and that's kind of, I mean, going back to my around the web, I mean, that's that's the danger of what Del Bigtree was saying is really taking people away from this community effort toward the health of everybody and thinking only about themselves. I also just want to say that there's a lot of testing going on. There are at least three vaccines in the United States that are in phase three testing. And when when I heard that, I said to my husband, oh my gosh, phase three testing. And he gave me this look. I'm like, you don't understand. There's only three phases. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> but, you know, they're, they're looking at 30,000 people. Half yeah. of them are getting a placebo. Mm-hmm. And the other half are getting the COVID-19 vaccine. And that's a lot of data to look at. So we should know pr- pretty well whether or not the vaccine works and uh, whether or not it's safe. I mean, and le- I mean, I'm always open to criticizing uh, how trials are done. I think we should all look at it with a skeptical eye and mm-hmm. be really hard on the researchers and say, no, really prove it. Yeah. Because we're about to give a vaccine basically to every man, woman, and child on the earth. And so we don't want, we don't want you know, a catastrophe because of that. But at the same time, th- that data is going to be pretty well scrutinized by some of the brightest minds in the world and i think by the time they're actually putting it in people's arms that people will feel a lot better about it yeah yeah i have a, I have a couple thoughts on this one is that i'm in groups where we'll discuss vaccines and someone will posit the question of will you get the coronavirus vaccine and i think it's completely valid to say well i'm gonna wait until the vaccine comes out <laughs> to, mm-hmm. to answer that question because for all we know, as we talked about earlier, you know, there are much higher risk groups when it comes to COVID-19. So this may be a vaccine that's only recommended for the high risk groups. It may not right. be like, uh, you know, there's other vaccines that are like that, that are only given to high risk people. Like the um, Ebola vaccine. Sure. Or even like there's a certain kind of pneumococcal vaccine that's for right. high risk people. There's, there's, there's precedent for vaccines that are only given a certain age ranges or risk st- 
stratifications of people. So it may not even be a decision that we need to make. Second, it's not out yet. We can look at the development and the safety data after it's out. And like you said, the experts are going to be making recommendations uh, whether or not uh, as to whether or not this should be given. So all of that is going to come into play. So I think it is kind of like it's it may be an interesting intellectual exercise but i don't think we need to be like super hard on people that are saying they're not sure yet because there is yep. no existing vaccine and that's okay to just kind of wait we're gonna leave it there um we always like to end with a call to action give people something to do and really i would like to make a very generic call to action but something i think is really important in this moment and that's to really explain to people near and dear around you why the concept of the common good or public health or our social contract or community immunity, whatever you want to call it, go out of your way to explain it to people that maybe aren't in on this conversation all the time. Even if they're people who are probably prone to agreeing with you, at least get that into their common lexicon so that when they're talking to other people, that idea can grow. And I, I think it's very important right now with everything we're talking about with routine immunization, with mask wearing, um, also you know, remember to join the Americans Who Mask group with all of the, all of the stuff we've got going on in the world with COVID. I think it's all very important that we really remember that we all belong to each other. We are all reliant on each other. And sometimes that's a good thing. And we should spread that message as something that is good and that we want other people to know. So that's my generic call to action. But at this moment, like I said, I think it's very important. It's perfect. Thank you. All right. We hope you have a great rest of your June heading into July. Be safe over the 4th of July if you are an American and you celebrate Independence Day. My name is Karen Ernst. I am the Executive Director of Voices for Vaccines. You can find us at voicesforvaccines.org. And I am Dr. Nathan Boonstra, General Pediatrician, Blank Jones Hospital. You can find me at my handle on Twitter, which is PedsGeekMD. You can also find me on Facebook or my blog, PedsGeekMD.com. All right. Facts talk out. Bye.